Hey fellow brain pickers, how would you like to get featured as a guest on multiple podcast shows like this one and get massive exposure? My company, getfeatured.com, will get you featured on targeted shows, will design you a custom bio page, pitch you to the host, prepare you for the shows, and promote you so you get even more brand exposure. Head over to getfeatured.com to get major publicity for your brand. Welcome to the Can I Pick Your Brain podcast, where successful entrepreneurs get their brains picked so you can apply mindset tricks and game-changing tactics that will help you become unstoppable. Now, here's your host, Daniel Geffen. Hey, fellow brain pickers, and welcome to episode 92 of Can I Pick Your Brain? My guest today is looking to become the youngest person to travel into space. Yes, you heard me right. 24-year-old Joseph Lazukin is on a mission to space, and he's just weeks away from launch. This tech entrepreneur is not short of impressive accomplishments. In fact, he taught himself to code when he was just 12 years old. When he was 13, he built an online community of over 10,000 members. At the age of 17, he turned $50 into $100,000. He also has launched multiple tech companies, including LiveLeap, which is the largest syndication platform for Facebook Live and brought in $480,000 in revenue in just the first three weeks. Oh, and on the side, he earns $75,000 a month consulting for other companies. As always, here's a short wrap I put together to introduce my guest. His story's insane. I can't wait to pick his brain. Was broke as a joke, sleeping in his car. Didn't think he'd get very far, but now he's a tech star. Big cash in his sleep, created Live Leap. He's the black sheep and his mission is deep. On a race to space, he's not out of place. Launch companies on a shoelace. Crazy challenges he's gonna face. Even death he needs to brace, but if that's the case, he'll leave his trace. His legacy he must embrace. Some think he's crazy, but maybe just maybe. They're just too lazy and their vision's hazy. But if you're looking to win, then listen to him. His name is Joseph Lazukin. Joseph, welcome to the show, and thanks for letting me pick your brain. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, man, that was <laughs> that was amazing. How, how did you end up doing that in such a short amount of time? <laughs> oh God. Um, I, for, for our listeners, by the way, when when Joseph said, "How did you do that in such a short period of time?" Uh, Joseph and I only actually decided to do this interview about an hour ago. I kid you not. So I've had literally less than an hour to prepare for this show, including the intro, the rap, and everything else. So thank you, Joseph. <laughs> um, that, the- that, I am impressed. That That is more impressive than all of my accomplish- I accomplishments doubt that. combined. Oh, that is stop. amazing. <laughs> I, there's no chance. There's no way. There's no way you're going to get away with that. Dude, this is, this is insane. I don't even know where to start. I mean... I think the best place to go is it's what I mean 12 years old you you started to code yourself let's go back there what were you doing at 12 I mean for crying out loud um back in the day uh, I kind of got an interest for engineering and I really wanted to be able to build stuff like I've always I've always wanted to own an aerospace engineering company since I've been in the sixth grade I know that sounds crazy but like Everybody always kind of figures what they want to be later on in life. And I was like, at sixth grade, my dad had made telescopes by hand. He actually uh, used to grind the lenses by hand and made it hand, uh, handmade telescopes. So I was Whoa. like, I want to have my own aerospace engineering company. So I wanted to get into engineering. But the thing is, I kind of come from a lower income family. And we couldn't really afford, I mean, to be able to build the robotics or any of the other stuff that some of the other kids were doing. So I was like... Okay, well, let's uh, let's look at programming. So people were uh, back in the day when this was when MySpace was cool. So <laughs> think <laughs> yeah. back to uh, how far back that was. Yeah, um, I actually started doing MySpace profiles uh, for twenty to fifty dollars a pop. So <laughs> nice. That's how I got my uh, feet wet in programming way back in the day, and then uh, all the feedback that I got from it definitely encouraged me to continue down that path. Cool. And then you said, uh, we said 13 years old, you then built an online community and you had about 10,000 members in there. Yeah. So my brother, um, he had this, he, he was a part of this kind of, uh, writing community online. It was like a forum community where like people would write their own, like kind of storylines and stuff. Um, a little bit kind of like Dungeons and Dragons, but not necessarily like kind of like the whole fantasy aspect. So, mm-hmm. 
I was like, well, I know how to program. I'm like, how hard would it be to create my own forum community? So then I created one, and uh, I mean, my brother ended up actually helping me out uh, with a little bit of the moderation uh, because you have to obviously there's a whole like setup for it. Like people have to write their initial characters; it has to be approved, and then mm-hmm. they can start writing with other people. It's it's kind of a whole new world on its own. And um, I ended up creating the forum community, and uh, word spread, and people kept on referring their friends. And before we knew it. Um, probably within the first five months, I'd say we had around 10,000 people that were writing, I mean, these massive, massive stories. I mean, we had over a hundred thousand posts too. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, of stories that were easily on, if you were to take them into like word or, um, any other word document, um, these were like five, six page, I mean, posts and people were writing out full on storylines could be just turned into, uh, like video games or anything. Mm-hmm. It was, it was really amazing to kind of see a community come together. And at the time I had no marketing experience, so I don't even know how it came together, but it just did. <laughs> That's incredible. And uh, by the way, as we're going through your story, I, I want to say something because you mentioned something just before we went on, uh, on, on record, you said that, um, the, f- nobody, no, what was it? What was it that you said? Something about the final hour? Oh man! Um, you said something about the fact that you know people only remember you by your final hour, right? They only remember yes. the stuff that you do at the end, and I love that. And I, and I feel like it's almost the theme of of your whole story, which we're really going to get into um, because we're going to talk about your mission to space, which which I think is incredibly inspiring and and what's really cool about it is that you know people only see the end product and they don't see all the what goes into it and just to give you know the you guys listening and and I an example of this um a small example but before before we went on um I usually have my uh you know intro I have it written down on a piece of paper uh, I don't have any questions that I script for the show. The show is completely free flow and we just have a conversation. But my intro, I do write it down and my printer basically broke. So I couldn't print the damn thing. And I'm like freaking out because I've got like five minutes left till the show goes live and I don't have my intro. So what am I going to do? And so I thought, you know what, screw it. I'm just going to basically look at it on my phone. And so literally I just like pulled out my phone and I read I basically did the intro from my phone. So just for like, for those of you listening that you think, oh, wow, everything's just so perfect and it always comes out great. You you have no idea what goes in to, you know, the final product. And you're going to see that with Joseph. And, and what I love about your story, Joseph, is that whilst you had all of these incredible um, accomplishments, uh, even at a very young age, you've had some major setbacks. In fact, uh, at one point you were sleeping in your car. Can you talk about that period of your life and how, you know, you were homeless, essentially your mother kicked you out? Yeah. So I, I've always been somewhat of the, uh, rebellious type, um, especially with any kind of authority. I've, I've always kind of had an issue and, uh, me and my mom just stopped kind of seeing eye to eye. And like, I, I have, Looking back on it, I, I definitely think that I could have acted a lot better. Um, but uh, at 17, I had uh, basically turned $50 into close to 100 grand hosting these massive parties. Um, anywhere from 800 to 2,400 people would show up, 10 to $20 at the door. Um, had whole productions, like basically we'd hired a production company, we'd get a DJ, like several DJs actually, Mm -hmm. and uh, it was just these massive dance parties. So I ended up making a lot of money in a really short amount of time with that and coming from a background where I just didn't have money. um, I didn't even ever go to prom, um, never got a yearbook until the very last year because we just didn't have the money to afford it. And um, a, a lot through high school, I ended up walking back and forth to school um, just simply because, I mean, circumstances. Mm-hmm. So when it ended up um, kind of coming to that point when I was roughly around like 20 years old, I had never known and they never really teach you in school about finances. So you never really learn how to manage money. And I think that's one of the biggest kind of failures um, with public education is that when I ended up making that money, I didn't realize how much was actually going to go instantly away mm-hmm. uh, to taxes. And then I had already bought a couple things and I'd already invested into a couple things. And by the time that was all said and done, I barely had a few thousand dollars left in my account. And I had some bad experiences. I had trusted somebody to build something for me uh, for 12 grand and they just never ended up doing it. And they took my money and ran with it. Are you kidding um, me? $12,000. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to build a... Uh, <laughs> 
And, <laughs> and it's not all roses. I mean, when you end up uh, uh, trying to strive for great uh, goals, I tried mm-hmm. to be able to create um, a drag and drop website builder. And this was way back before uh, Wix and Squarespace and all these major companies had kind of come uh, to fruition. And I had spent like $3,500 on like the perfect domain. I had spent like another $1,000 on a logo. Like I didn't know how much the value of these things were. Mm-hmm. And then I was just kind of going into it and I had trusted somebody to basically do all the design work and they just didn't end up doing it. And it had been months and I was having to pay bills over that time. And by the end of it, um, uh, a lot of that had just boiled down to frustration. And uh, around the age of 20, um, I had just come back from a trip from Norway, and I had spent probably a good chunk of money um, just visiting friends and stuff out there. And I'm like, okay, now I'm back. And like, I had a little bit of an edge on my shoulder of making so much money that I didn't really want to take on any contracts or anything else like that that I didn't feel were worth my time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was definitely very inflated as far as my head was going. Like, I, I just, I didn't. I saw opportunity. Opportunity was coming to me, but I wasn't in the mindset to recognize it. And because of that, I ended up basically um, ended up fighting with my mom, and uh, she ended up kicking me out. Um, and I, at the time, I think I had maybe five hundred dollars left in my account um, at that time. And immediately, three hundred fifty of that ended up going out to uh, my car payment. Another hundred dollars went to insurance. So I was ultimately left living in my car um, with a stubborn personality. Um, a really toxic mindset and fifty dollars in my bank account. <laughs> wow, that's insane! So you went um, from making a hundred thousand dollars in a very short period of time, at a very young age, to then getting into a fight with your mom, letting your ego get the better of you, and then ending up sleeping in your car because you were too stubborn to, you know, to make up. Essentially, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, a, a lot of it. I mean, I definitely admit a lot of it was my fault. Um, mm-hmm. And that that hundred grand was definitely stretched over a lot of different projects. That it just, I tried to make them work, but they just, no matter how much I tried or how much money I threw at it, it just didn't seem to work. And I think that's one thing that a lot of people can learn is that it's not always about having the resources. It's also about having the proper mindset. Looking Mm -hmm. back, if I had the same resources um, and I could be able to do it all over again, I do it a million different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I definitely think that um, to that credit, I I learned a lot through that experience. I learned humility um, by being homeless. I think that's one of the number one things um, that I ended up learning um, was that when when you have really nothing, and I eventually ended up running out of money for food, and uh, my girlfriend at the time, she was a sweet, sweet gem, um, and she would actually bring me peanut butter and jelly sandwiches while I was sleeping in the back of my car, oh my and uh, pretty much living out of coffee shops by day, wow. and um, it, it was an interesting experience. Like I, I had too much pride to beg, and yet it ended up coming down to a point where I hadn't eaten for two days, and I was like... I can't do this anymore. Like physically, I can't do this anymore. And I, I just made a decision at that point. I was like, this is just not how my story is going to read. Like I, I, this, something has to change. Mm-hmm. And at that point I was like, you know what? Forget it. I, I'm going to take anything and every opportunity that kind of comes my way and see where it leads me. I'm going to, I'm going to be open-minded. I'm just going to drop this ego that I have because it's toxic. It's, it's ruined my relationship with my mom. Mm-hmm. It's it's made me where I am. I'm homeless. I'm the, basically the bottom of the bottom. My car is about to be repoed. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. So mm-hmm. immediately after kind of changing that mindset, I mean, I had posted my resume out to a bunch of different outlets. And um, I, I ended up getting a uh, headhunter who ended up calling me back. And he's like, it's not a job, but it's a, it's a contract. I'm like, well, how much is a contract worth? And he's like $5,000. And he's like, it should only take you a month though. And I was like, okay, great. So I ended up taking on this contract and I, and they thankfully, and I mean, luckily, I mean, this was literally where I hadn't eaten for two days. They ended up giving me the $5,000 um, when I ended up coming into the office. And I mean, I, I literally <laughs> wow. showered at my girlfriend's house who was living with her parents at the time. So like I couldn't stay there, but I was able to shower when her parents weren't there. Hopefully they're not listening. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, I went to the interview and I landed it. And uh, that $5,000 allowed for me to be able to save my car from being repoed, to be able to get a place. And, uh, to my buddy donated a mattress to me and Mm -hmm. I actually still have that mattress till this day. (laughs) And I I think a lot of it is, um, just, I I keep it one as kind of a keepsake and like, everybody's like, Oh, you should throw out that mattress. You should throw (laughs) out that mattress. But I mean, 
it's a, a good mattress. I mean, I freaking love it. I mean, I call it the cloud mm-hmm. bed because it's great. But another thing is that it's also a reminder of where I've been, and I don't, I don't want to ever go back to that place. So, like, one thing that I've kind of found is a trend, not just kind of in my life, but a lot of people's lives, is that anybody who's gone through hardships usually ends up rebounding ten times better. It either breaks yep. them or makes them into something infinitely better. And I, I'm trying to use that in uh, that experience to be able to make me better, and that's kind of how the whole homeless experience kind of taught me. And I, and honestly, I mean, if any, anybody wants to be able to succeed, honestly, I think incorporating talking to homeless people and actually getting to know them and their story would elevate your business and give you a whole new perspective of where things go when you don't try, when you get a toxic mm-hmm. ego, when you don't add value to the world and you think that you are the value, that's when everything ends up changing. And, and I think that that is probably a really big lesson that I would tell a lot of people. I want to challenge you, Joseph, on the ego thing for a second. Um, it's interesting because you say you, you know you learn about humility and you you basically want to avoid ego. How does going to space and becoming the youngest space traveler in the world? Uh, how is that not ego? So I've always just like I said, I've always wanted to own my own aerospace engineering company. It's just it's something that is like so true to my heart that it's it's almost my Why? identity. I mean, it, it's if I don't do it, it, it's I don't know who I am. Um, so when it comes to the the whole space launch and everything else like that, I mean, it, it's a little bit of a testament to what I can do. Um, part of part of the reason why I want to do it a is because I think that it could be able to bring the world leaps and bounds forward, especially in that in that uh, field. And in, in regards to ego, though, it, it's not something that is really ego driven. It's just that I really have always wanted to go to space. <laughs> so I, I thought about it when I was homeless. I was like, where, where do I want to be? Like, who do I see myself as? Where do I want my story to go? Mm-hmm. And I was like, I want to be and live the life to the fullest extent and break every possible boundary that I can. Because at the end of the day, success isn't about having a lot of money. Success isn't about having the world love you. Success is about finding fulfillment. And when it comes to the space launch and having my own aerospace engineering company and hopefully one day being able to take people to another planet. Um, really? And I know so you want to be, be the next Elon Musk? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I mean, I, I actually have ideas that are far more reaching than I think what Elon kind of has planned. And I've Whoa. actually talked to a lot of people in the aerospace engineering industry um, about these different things. I know it sounds crazy. Okay. Elon Um, Musk, if you're listening to this, dude, you need to get in touch with (laughs) Joseph because Joseph's got some tips for you, mate. (laughs) I I know that's a big, bold claim to make, but I, I, well, can you share some of the, can you, can you share some of those um, ideas that Elon is in just in case Elon's listening to this? Maybe, uh, (laughs) maybe he is. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. So one of the big things is a lot of people, they've seen his Mars special. They've also seen other plans of other companies to be able to take people to the moon and build colonies on the moon and build colonies on Mars. And I've always really wondered why are we building on top of the surface? Why not burrow into the surface and have it to where we just send machines there in the first place. Because right now, it's cool and dandy for press and everything to say, hey, we're going to send people to Mars. But the thing is, if it's completely inhospitable, and people get there, and they're not able to survive for a long enough duration of time, obviously, that's just a dead-end trip. You don't want to be doing that. Mm -hmm. And for press purposes, it sounds great. It sounds like humanity is going forward. But what about the practicality of it? So I ended up talking to a lot of other people in the field, and I was like, well, what if we were to actually end up sending... Um, an entire team of robots out there. I mean, I don't know if you've seen recently, but if you end up Googling online, they have 3D printers right now that are pinning, uh, printing entire six-story apartment complexes. What? And nah. you, no, I'm dead serious. Get out and of here. They have a company um, that I believe is in the Netherlands um, that is currently act- – no, it's Denmark – um, that is actually currently building um, entire bridges. It's, it's building an entire steel <laughs> frame bridge, and it's just rolling across. And you can actually look it up. Nah. And it's, uh, I believe that company is called MX3D.com, um, or it's something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, why don't we have it to where we burrow underground, we have another robot that ends up basically covering that so that we, you have an airtight facility underground, mm-hmm. and then we can have it to where another one, because robots are being used in the farming and agriculture now, why not have it to where another robot is able to be able to plant um, entire crops ahead of the time and be able to set up kind of the entire environment for humans prior to any humans that ever end up arriving hold and on hold on hold on whoa like- slow down slow down i mean joseph this is whew, my mind is spinning 
Let me just get this straight. You're saying that you want to burrow underground and create a new world underground underneath the surface? Is that is that what you're trying to say here? Well, yeah, it, it makes a lot more sense to be able to go underground rather than above ground because above ground you need to be able to have all the materials you need, the metals, you need the plastics, you need well, hold, on, hold on, hold on. Let um, me stop you for a second. Why do we need to do anything? What's wrong with planet Earth, like just as is? Why, why do we need to be burrowing or, or flying into space? I mean, I think it's the natural evolution of humanity. I mean, if you if you look at history, and this is where it's going to kind of get a little bit nerdy. Yes. Um, whenever you end up looking at history, the greatest wars and a, a lot of the biggest feuds of humanity have typically always been over resources. Everybody started off back in, I mean, basically the caveman era. We started off in tribes. Then those tribes ended up conflicting over resources. Then eventually mm -hmm. we had cities, states, countries, and they ended up conflicting over differences in ideology and resources. Mm -hmm. And we're starting to get to the point where we're starting to grow at such a rapid rate population-wise that we're starting to consume so many resources. And unfortunately, we're doing a lot of detriment to the environment. We're doing a lot of detriment um, to basically the future of humanity if we don't actually leave. We actually have to be able to start expanding our resources, our abilities to be able to find other places to live. Otherwise, I mean, honestly, and this has kind of started to become um, kind of resonant along the entire community is that if we continue down this path, it's it's not going to end up in a way that anybody's going to want it. So I think it's actually an obligation towards the future that everybody ends up basically jumping on this bag and wagon to be able to help figure out how can we be able to get to other planets? How can we be able to innovate in the space, um, uh, the aerospace field? Because it is our future. I mean, we it's been 55 years since JFK ended up saying we choose the moon. He, it's It's been 55 years, and yet we're just now breaking the surface of being able to have civilians to be able to go to space. I mean, it's no how much does it than it was before. How much does it cost right now if somebody wants to go and travel into space? Uh, I, I mean... Right now, uh, Elon Musk has definitely set the bar. I'm not sure exactly what the price point um, is that he's looking at. I know that Richard Branson's offering, uh, I believe it's at $250,000. Quarter of a million uh, dollars to go to 15, space. Huh, say what? Quarter of a million dollars right now to go to space. Yeah, a quarter of a million dollars okay. just to not to go to space, but to be able to go up to the higher Earth atmosphere for, I believe, about 15 minutes. So That's not it. Technically 15 space, minutes. Yes. So that's that's what I believe it is. I would have to definitely okay. uh, look it up again, but that's that's currently the going rate. So <laughs> it's a okay. little bit out of the reach for most people. What what would you think is possible to get it down to and and is this part of your space mission? Is this why you're trying to to go into space? Yeah, so Part of the whole reason about why I'm doing what I'm doing, I'm not doing a, a space jump. I'm not trying to jump from 140,000 feet in order to be able to drum up publicity just for mm -hmm. myself. It's it's not an ego trip by any means. It's When I ended up trying to do this project, I ended up basically thinking, okay, how can we be able to take what Felix and Alan Eustace have done and make it so that way everybody can be able to go up to the higher Earth atmosphere and go up to 140,000 feet in an, in an economical format. So I was like, how can we do this? I looked at all the different costs. I broke it down. I'm like, okay, we already know that we can recover the capsule. Can we recover the gas? Can we recover the balloon? And I started on that. So I was like, okay, how can we be able to recover the gas of this entire um, apparatus? And when I looked at it, I was okay, like, hold, okay. Hold on, hold on one second. When you say recover the apparatus, what, how much does it cost for a balloon and for, like, what does it cost for these things? Uh, the balloon definitely ranges. Um, I it, it can be several hundreds of thousands of dollars. Wow. Um, the gas alone can actually be hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending Gee. on whether you're using hydrogen or okay. um, or helium. That's a ton uh, of money. Helium's become infinitely more expensive. I think the going rate right now is somewhere around thirty-five dollars a kilogram versus um, hydrogen, which is literally only around like a dollar thirty-five. So by comparison, it's thirty-five times cheaper. Wow. The only downside is that it's a little bit flammable. <laughs> <laughs> You don't want that to happen in space. So, so, so. Besides for the balloon and the gas, you you mentioned also the the spaceship. Is that what you said? The rocket. Yeah. So it, it's not necessarily a spaceship. So if you if you're familiar with Felix Baumgartner's launch, um, he was in a capsule. He was in a one person capsule. capsule. Okay. okay. And we've already kind of isolated down, and we've actually gotten quotes um, and from all these different different manufacturers back when we were originally doing the project. 
mm-hmm. um, a couple months ago for the three seater. And um, we had gotten quotes to build the entire capsule out for only $110,000 where it could be pressurized, mm-hmm. where it has all the necessary life support equipment, et cetera. And uh, then as far as the major costs, I mean, the reoccurring costs, the, if we were to actually do this as a transportation company to near space, um, that really came down to how can we be able to save the balloon and how can we be able to save the gas? So mm-hmm. I actually ended up inventing something that can allow for us to be able to regulate buoyancy in flight, which means that we're able to be able to take um, the actual gas from the balloon into a reservoir and decrease our displacement to decrease our buoyancy so that way we can actually take people um, up to 140,000 feet and back down in a controlled ascent and descent, which nobody's ever done before. NASA, NOAA, all the other companies that have been using equipment in order to be able to test uh, whatever scientific stuff that they're doing, or NASA that's been testing equipment, because they've been using balloons since the 1930s in order to be able to test spatial equipment before it goes into the space station, into um, an actual rocket, a satellite, whatever Mm -hmm. it ends up being. Um, They use these balloons in order to be able to actually test their equipment. So what I ended up doing is I was like, okay, how can we be able to save the balloon and the gas? And what I ended up kind of coming up with that model to be able to save the gas, it infinitely made it more palatable for most people to be able to afford it. It's not, it, it's not crazy cheap, but it's down to the point where we can actually charge $50,000 a person right now and be able to take somebody into the atmosphere up to 140,000 feet wow. and back down for an experience of a lifetime. Wow. $50,000. So that's basically from quarter of a million dollars down to 50,000. That's a huge, huge cut. Yes, it, it absolutely is. And, it, and it's largely because you can save that gas. The vehicle itself doesn't end up having to be uh, re- basically recycled and rebuilt all over again. It, it comes down in a whole piece. It's basically, um, it, even if in a catastrophic situation where maybe the balloon does pop in flight, there's three different parachutes that will cover the capsule and anybody who's mm-hmm. in it. So either one way or another, everybody's going to be able to get the full experience. Okay, but 50,000 um, 50, is still not mass appeal. Most people can't afford you know, to just throw 50 grand on a exactly. trip. So can you get it lower than that? Yeah, absolutely. So I ended up talking to manufacturers who build these um, polyurethane balloons. And the thing is, when I asked them, I was like, hey, is there any way that we can be able to reuse these balloons for multiple flights? And they're like, well, yeah, but you'd have to make it significantly thicker. So I don't know if you know uh, much about these high-altitude balloons, but they're actually anywhere between one-eighth to three-eighths uh, the actual thickness of a sandwich bag. So your typical sandwich bag that you put your sandwich in, mm-hmm. it's one-eighth to one uh, three-eighths the thickness of that. So it's incredibly, incredibly thin. It's actually so thin, in fact, that you actually have to wear cotton gloves uh, so that way the oil doesn't transfer to the balloon because it can actually cause it to pop prematurely. What? <laughs> and you're going to yeah. put yourself in one of these contraptions and send yourself up 140,000 feet. Somebody has to do it. I mean, you're crazy. There's always, there's always <laughs> the trailblazers. I mean, I'm not the first. I mean, obviously, Felix Baumgartner, I believe, was the second person to be able to get to uh, the 100K club, 100,000 foot club. Oh my goodness. And uh, then Alan Eustis ended up beating him, and I believe he got up to 135,000 feet. And uh, I'm just trying to be able to take it one step further. And in all reality, if worst case scenario ends up happening, if I don't end up getting up to uh, maybe 135,000 feet, if I'm only getting 100,000 feet, it's still a huge victory because the kind of obstacles that have had to be overcome in order to get to even this point are unbelievable. I never thought that I would be able to do some of the things that I've done in order to get to this point. Give me me some examples. Can you you give us some examples of... The timeline and what 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 have you come up against? Because um, you're planning on a launch in August, right? Which is in about a month. Yes, uh, August twenty first. Which is in about six. What is that? Six weeks from now. Uh, yeah, I would definitely. It's, it's <laughs> so you've got six weeks until you're going into space. This is nuts. So can you give me what what's the timeline? What how did you prepare for this mentally, physically, emotionally? Like, tell me, tell us everything. <laughs> So it, the whole idea and, and kind of how it evolved into being a man launch, it, it didn't start because of Felix. It didn't start because of Alan Eustace's uh, jumps. It ended up starting back when I was, um, I can't remember what age I was. Um, I think it was 21 or uh, 22. It was basically three, almost two and a half to three years ago. Okay. And um, I ended up basically 
talking to a couple of people and I was like, you know, it's going to be possible to be send microsatellites into space for $30,000. And they're like, there's no way that you can send a microsatellite into space for $30,000. And I was like, all right, let me prove it. And Why, like, hold, okay, hold, so hold, then, hold on, stop for one second, because I think most of the people listening to this, including me, we don't know what the hell you're talking about. Why would you, what's a microsatellite? <laughs> why, why the hell do we care about microsatellites being in space for $30,000? And I mean, how much do they cost right now? And, and who cares? Well, why, why do we care? <laughs> Sorry. So right now, setting up satellites into space costs millions of dollars. Um, wow. You have to be able to rent space on a shuttle in order to be able to get it deployed when it actually ends up going into altitude. Um, <laughs> okay. And it costs millions of dollars. It, it's, it's crazy how much it actually costs. Okay. And it's, as you know, it's extremely risky. You've seen a lot of the um, rockets that have exploded, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. and these entire payloads get launched. So anyway, um, kind of going back to it, microsatellites are basically, they're, I mean, they're very, very small models of what satellites do. So we've advanced so much in kind of the technology space that we're able to be able to condense things that used to take up entire rooms down into the size of literally our phones. It's, yep. I mean, in our hands, we're able to do things that rooms used to be able to do. And so is true for satellites. A lot of okay. the satellites that we used to have um, they're huge and they're bulky because of just the technology of the air. We have very, very old satellites in circul- uh, circulation right now, and there's several thousands um, that are being added, uh, not necessarily every year, probably a couple hundred every year. Um, Why do we need is, satellite? Tech- Why do we need it, though? Like, talk well, talk to me as, a, as, a, as an average guy who's living a regular life. <laughs> I'm not flying to space. Why do I care about these satellites? Well, do you use... Um, GPS at all? I mean, to be able to navigate from one place to another? Yes, GPS I use all the time. Satellites are what's responsible for our GPS. Satellites for our cell phones, uh, how we can be able to talk uh, even right now. I mean, yes, there's transatlantic lines laid between the United States and Europe and China and everything else like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot of it ends up having to do with signals are bounced off of towers and then back down to the opposite continent. Okay. So it's, it's... Fundamental. I mean, all of our maritime data where we're monitoring the oceans, all of our geological data where we're monitoring, okay, is the world heating up? Is the world not heating up? All of that data comes from satellite imaging. All of that comes from, I mean, the evolution of basically technology getting into space, telling us the health of our Earth, telling us, mm-hmm. um, allowing for us to be able to communicate better. And it's extremely, extremely important, especially if we're going to, I mean, have any hopes of being able to go further. So what's your goal by getting the cost down to $30,000 for, for satellites in space? What's the ultimate goal? So the interesting thing is that with microsatellites, I mean, they can be anywhere from the size of your phone all the way up to pretty much, I, I don't know if there's really a cutoff for the term micro, um, but I've seen I've seen microsatellites about the size of your computer um, at the greatest um, kind of size. Okay. And the smallest size I've seen smaller than, do you have a rechargeable charger by chance? Like, the, you know, the ones that you would charge your phone with? Yeah. A few yeah. as small as that. Yeah. Wow. Uh, okay. So, and, and these satellites, um, they're being used by governments all over the world. So, for instance, Norway ended up launching a uh, microsatellite where it monitors their entire maritime data. So, one small satellite that's probably about the size of, your laptop is actually monitoring all in the maritime data around the Nordic region. So if we can be able to launch microsatellites for a fraction of the cost, it opens up not only for scientific purposes um, and, and research, but it also opens up the opportunity to be able to actually help people worldwide because then we can be able to provide internet um, free and discount internet to the entire world. So think about it right now. How much are you spending uh, for your internet and your cell phone service right now per month? Uh, probably about a hundred bucks a month. Between the both of them? No, each. Let's say each. Okay. So if you're spending $200 a month, uh, times that by 12, you're looking at $2,400 a year that you're basically spending, uh, that you could be spending towards something else. So if we were able to take that down to maybe 15 to $20 a month, how would that change your life? Not having to pay an extra $180 a month. That that would be be cool. Let's get those micro satellites up there. Come on, man. What are you waiting for? (laughs) That's brilliant. And for some people, that's the world. And the cool part about it is, is that in doing so, you make you make communications, so basically internet, and you also make um, basically just being able to have a cell phone um, and any of the internet of things that have been developing uh, be able to be a commodity. It's no longer wow. a business. So now all, everybody around the world be, can be able to have access to internet 
and access to cell phone service for a commodity price. So the wow. same way that you pay for electricity and the same way that you pay for water, internet and cell phone service should be the you exact same. That you're gonna, you, you realize that you're going to be killing all of the broadband providers and all the cell phone providers. Like You'll be killing their business. I mean, everything at the end of the day, it's either adapt or your company goes away. It, <laughs> I don't think anybody shed a tear about the typewriter going away in, in lieu of a laptop. Okay, <laughs> I hear that. So Verizon if, you're, Verizon, if you're listening to this, you better be scared and you better start adapting. So tell, tell us a bit about like some of the the obstacles that you've had actually let's start with training what what do you have to do on a daily basis to actually train yourself to be prepared to go uh into space to near space oh man okay so starting off um i i created a checklist of everything that i needed to do and i mean it took up several pages but some what? of the highlights are is wow. yeah <laughs> um, okay what so are the craziest the things are, Okay, some of the crazy things. Um, when I initially ended up starting this with without having much knowledge um, of kind of the whole inner workings of spacesuits and everything else like mm -hmm. that, I ended up going, okay, how much do these spacesuits weigh? And the average spacesuit actually weighs 310 pounds. 280 Jeez. of those pounds is from the waist up. So I was like, all right, so I have to be able to be ready to be able to wear a spacesuit for an extended duration of time. The entire trip we expected to take um, roughly around six hours. So I was like, okay, I have to be ready to wear this thing for six hours long. And I was like, all right, time to hit the gym. Started hitting the gym, basically been working out pretty much every single day. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on, Joseph, hold on, back up. Just for simple English, for people that don't know pounds and, and weights and all this, it, it, you said you have to wear a 350 pound suit. Uh, 350 pounds. 310 so, pounds. 310 pounds. So the average person weighs, what, 150 pounds? Mm -hmm. So that means that you're basically wearing two people on you. <laughs> it's like yes. you're and, lifting two and, people. Yeah, and the majority of that is from the waist up. So if you think about it, it's like having two people on your back. Because on your that's back. where so, most of the life support and all of the other equipment. Life it's support. mostly front-loaded on your chest and on your back. Okay, and you said eight hours, but surely the journey is a lot longer than eight hours, or is it gravity then goes after after the eight hours? Six hours. No, I initially it said uh, six hours. So it's actually going to be. Um, there's actually an infographic online that you can actually end up seeing. Um, mm -hmm. It's going to take about four hours of prep time while everything's basically getting prepped, ready for launch, and then the entire ascent time is going to take roughly about an hour and forty-five minutes to get all the way up to one hundred forty thousand feet. What? At which point you? Yeah, it, you'd be surprised. Um, uh, a an hour and a half. You're up in space. Yes, up to one hundred forty thousand feet. So. Dang. Um, basically in the high earth altitude you're not necessarily technically in space because you're still protected by the earth's atmosphere um meteorite uh, meteorites and everything else like that usually strike the atmosphere around the two hundred eighty thousand foot range so it's basically about two times higher than where i'll be <laughs> so you could see then, the earth from from the top when you get to the top you'll be able to see the the whole like the earth oh absolutely absolutely i'll be able wow. to see in almost the entire earth um jeez I'll, that's a sight about a can you take a selfie and, and send it to me? <laughs> it's going to be live stream. It's so, uh, you live, live stream. See the entire journey. No way. So. That's insane. Yeah, okay. Okay. So, so hold on. So, hit, so hitting the gym to prepare you for carrying two people on your back for up to six hours. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. What else? So on top of that, you also have to be able to obviously recover in the worst case scenario. So when Felix ended up jumping, uh, he ended up spinning to the point where I believe that he passed out for a couple of seconds. Spinning. So, yeah. So when you end up jumping out of a plane, um, think of it like throwing a piece of a, a two by four outside of the outside of the plane. It's just going to flimsy all around. It's going to start spinning really, really fastly, kind of like a helicopter blade does. Wow. Um, so you kind of have to think about it in that in those terms. If you're stiff, you're going to spin. If you're not stiff, you're not necessarily going to spin, but you may. So you have to be able to understand how do I recover. For some, for whatever reason, I could start tumbling head over angles. I could start spinning so fast that I ended up passing out from the G-force. There's there's a million things that could end up happening. Um, oh, so you have God. to be trained for that. So I've been jumping anywhere from three to five times a day, weather permitting. Um, it's what do you about mean jump? Hold on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold, hold. What do you mean jumping? Like jumping up and down? What do you mean jumping? <laughs> I've been jumping out of planes uh, roughly three to five times a day. What? Um, Stop yeah. it! 
You're jumping <laughs> out of planes every single day, three times a day. I mean, I've never jumped out of a plane once in my entire life, and I don't really plan on it because it just sounds nuts. You're doing it three it's, times a it's day. Not scary. Yeah, it, it's definitely not it's, scary. What? So, for anybody that's listening, any, if you have a fear of heights, which I actually do, I have a fear of heights. Uh, my brother really? instilled me the fear of heights back when I was eight years old, and don't want to remember that. But anyway. Um, so when, uh, I was, you have a fear of heights and yet you're going 140,000 feet up. <laughs> yeah. That's, I mean, that's a, so I, I think it's wrong to call it a fear of heights because at the end of the day, I think it's just a logical falling in a dangerous situation. Mm. Uh, because when you put on the parachute and you get to that door for the very first time, yeah. I mean, you go, you go jumping from your very first time and you see all the skilled people in the very beginning, the, the people that are jumping solo, you see them jump out and you have all these people in a plane and then you don't, and you see them just pop out. You don't hear any screams. You don't hear any of that. You're, you don't feel like it's a, a scary situation. You just see them one by one, just go out. And then there's the other people that are jumping with you. Now they're going out in the in the tandem pairs. So you have the instructor and the people in the doing it the first time. They're going out. They're not screaming. So you're probably already going to get pressured into thinking, "Oh my gosh, all right, I can't scream because now I'm going to look really, really embarrassed." <laughs> um, so then you get to the door, and I get to the door, and, and this was my honest thoughts. When you're at that high of an altitude, you look down, and everything just looks like somebody got a paintbrush and just painted a, can a canvas. You can't see any rocks. You can't see any cars. The houses look like little dots on a piece of paper. Oh, you're um, scaring me. Jeez, yeah, just thinking about it. Yeah, it's, it's not that bad. And mountains just <laughs> kind of look like mud that's on a table. Mud. I mean, that's the way that I saw it. And I was <laughs> like, all right, let's do this. We get to the we get to the uh, the hangar door and we just jump and I was like all right well this is definitely very interesting and he did a he did a backflip when he ended up doing it so he pushed us out and then he rolled back oh and that was a little interesting and like you start to accelerate really really quickly and like you get that that rush and it, and it's actually I don't know how to describe it it's just probably one of the most invigorating feelings that you'll ever get and maybe it's the beginning of me becoming an adrenaline junkie um, <laughs> but I ended up jumping and. I just remember falling and then I'm still falling really, really fast, but I'm not, I'm not accelerating anymore. And I'm just like, this, this was kind of weird. And then no more sooner than I had thought that he ends up pulling the parachute and I kid you not. And this is going to be the thing that I'd say a lot of people don't think about when they go tandem, uh, tandem diving is that your instructor probably weighs anywhere between 160 to 200 pounds. Mm -hmm. If you weigh like I do, I weigh around 215 pounds. Mm -hmm. Um, you, realize that the parachute in order to be able to lift you has to be able to create greater lift than all of that weight combined plus the Holy parachute which cow. usually weighs anywhere between 30 to 50 pounds so the straps are between your legs <laughs> oh no oh yeah um, oh no it was not the i mean they're they're kind of off to the sides of your groin region but i'll, oh, I'll be honest God. the first time that that happened Oh, I was definitely not expecting it, and that was a definite um, experience that I had to go, do I really want to do this now? Uh, and uh, then, I mean, after that point, the instructor was great. He, his name was actually Monkey, which was pretty funny. Um, and uh, we get down, and we're, we're basically, we have seven minutes in the air. So we're just gliding around. You see everybody else that jumped before you. They're all gliding around, and you're like, well, I'm perfectly safe. And uh, then all of a sudden, the instructor ends up pulling one of the levees, and you end up doing like you 360, and you go down really, really fast. And I was like, "Wow, okay, I don't know how Whoa. safe this parachute is. I don't know if this guy's trying to kill me. I don't know what's going on." <laughs> and uh, then uh, he ends up pulling the other levee, so we go the other direction. And like he continues to do this, and then uh, he's like, "Here," and he grabs my hands and he puts it on there for the first time. And I'm like, "All right, great." And I'm like, "Let's <laughs> let's just." do this let's let's do this and he's like pull all the way down to your hip and i was like all right let's go and then all of a sudden i had the power of me falling so it was it was really unique experience because I, I had the power of me falling so i could go do i want to fall do i want to die in my own hands and, and it's and it's really invigorating to feel that way i mean you have it every day when you get in your car and you drive to work or wherever you go but when you when you genuinely this parachute is a lifeline and if you mess up you're dead it, it's very interesting and one of the crazy things about jumping in Arizona is that there's dust devils and if a dust devil crops up it can collapse a parachute so <laughs> you have to make sure to jump early in the morning um, but anyway so I ended up oh learning goodness. how to be able to do the turns and when you pull both down at the same time for anybody who's interested in actually skydiving 
Um, it's called a flare, and you'll end up actually slowing down. And I learned how to be able to do the turns, the flares. And uh, I think the other scary part of skydiving is when you're landing. Um, you're coming in pretty fast. You don't know what you're supposed to do. And then the instructor finally tells you at the final end, he's like, just put your knees up like you're sitting in a chair. And uh, you're either going to run, you're going to walk, or you're just going to slide. And uh, my first jump, I remember, um, <laughs> oh my God. Uh, he, he kind of tripped. We were going to walk, and he ended up tripping. And uh, I just went in for a slide instead, and he just literally ends up falling on my back. And he's like, I thought it was going to crush you. I was like, no, nah, you're good. Oh and uh, it, it was definitely an invigorating experience. Once you finally get to the ground, you literally start to question yourself. Did I really throw myself out of a plane? That's and insane. then my thinking is like, let's do it all over again. So. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> seven minutes, seven minutes of falling. No, I mean, when you, when you do a 13, uh, when you jump from 13,000 feet, you usually only free fall for about a minute. And then you, your parachute basically, uh, is deployed for about seven minutes, five to seven minutes. Oh, wow. So does seven minutes, how long does it feel? Cause obviously seven minutes is seven minutes, but does it feel like less or more than seven minutes oh it, it, it absolutely feels less i mean hands really? down when i ended up doing it i was like we're done already and like really wow. for the average person for the average person um it's actually kind of costly to do a tandem dive it's somewhere around anywhere around 150 200 dollars mm -hmm. and to spend that in a matter of what felt like a minute i was like man this is really costly i don't know if i'm going to be able to afford this training <laughs> you're doing it three times a day though that's nuts yeah, but that that's so the two hundred dollars a day uh, or two hundred dollars a jump is for tandem dives. Um, when you actually start doing your solo dives, it only costs twenty five dollars in order to be able to take the plane up and jump oh, out. Oh wow, that's uh, that's a big yeah, difference. So it, it's a big big difference, and, and it's a lot more fun to jump by yourself than it is to <laughs> jump with somebody strapped to your back. Um, the 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 parachute doesn't help hurt when it's deployed, um, and if you are going to do it, I mean, it doesn't really hurt that bad. I would just definitely recommend wearing something a little bit thicker um, uh -huh. and not wearing any form of tight underwear whatsoever. Probably sweats if possible. Uh -huh. um, it, you just want to make it comfortable because those straps will snag you. And I mean, they can they can move up, and it's it's not a <laughs> it's not a pleasant experience. And like the first seven times, you have to do a tandem jump um, with somebody, so you kind of have to get used to that um, that feeling. But it's it's amazing. It's it's an amazing rush and it's a transformational experience. I definitely recommend anybody to do it. I mean, if you're looking, if you own a company and you're trying to build a team building experience, it's one of the funnest things that you can possibly do. It's very, 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 very rare that somebody actually ever ends up dying. Um, you're actually more likely to get killed in a car accident than you are from skydiving. So really? I definitely recommend is that it for, for anybody. Is that a fact that you're more likely to get? Wow. Yeah. Absolutely. That's... Absolutely. You're more likely to die in a car than you ever would skydiving. That's insane. So why do you need to go three times a day uh, to practice for the the flight up? Because, I mean, you're not flying down, you're flying up. So, so the flight up is, uh, the reason why I'm practicing skydiving is because if something happens on the way up, so the balloon could end up popping for whatever reason. It could be a bad seam. It could be we just get to an altitude where the wind, pre the wind pressure, uh, wind speeds are so high that it just shears the balloon and rips it open like a zipper. Yeah. Um, there's so many different scenarios that could happen. A bird could technically go through it and that oh, could end God. up popping the balloon. I mean, it, it, the craziest things could possibly happen. Mm -hmm. So usually doing these things in desolate areas is typically where they're done. They're usually done in New Mexico. Um, there's a hobbyist aerospace engineering facility in, uh, in Nevada. Um, and people do it in the Antarctic too. They actually launch equipment in the, in the Arctic. Um, so realistically, I want to be able to train for the worst case scenarios. So I want to be able to go, okay, if anything happens on the way up, I'm prepared to do this. If anything happens when I actually end up doing the jump, if I end up spinning like Felix, I know how to be able to recover. And those were kind of the, the methodologies of me going, okay, I need to be 100% prepared for this. I need to work back from failure. I need to go, okay, this is what we don't want. This is what we do want. So I started going, okay, the first thing I need to do is get more experience in jumping because I don't have a lot of jumps under my belt. Even mm -hmm. when I do this, I'm only going to have roughly around 55 jumps under my belt when I actually end up doing this major jump. Mm -hmm. And I'm being trained by these guys that have 12,000 and 20,000 jumps underneath their belt who are much more equipped to do this. But the thing is that once you jump a couple of times, especially with the help of the instructors, um, and they're basically helping you kind of understand spin, they'll both potentially spin you in order to be able to show you, hey, this is how you recover. There's always one to two guys that end up going down with you in case you panic or anything else like that. So it's a completely mm -hmm. safe scenario. 
And I'd rather learn now than learn when I'm actually doing it. And I'm unable to be able to control it because when you get up to the altitudes that we're talking about, you don't really have much air and you don't really have much control. Once you pass 63,000 feet, which is the Armstrong limit, you have very, very low air density, which means that you can technically, um, it, it becomes, everything becomes significantly harder to recover. So if you're going to recover it, you have to start implementing it sooner rather than later and you have to recognize the signs of it. So I'm kind of training my own muscle memory to be able to go, okay, if this starts happening, respond this way. And wow. the only way that you can end up doing that is by jumping several times, and I'm doing it as many times as I can leading up to the actual jump because I don't have all the experience in the world. Um, Felix was by far a much more experienced diver than I was, um, and I don't know how many jumps Alan had underneath his belt. Um, but at the end of the day, I need to make sure I'm prepared. I mean, I, I know I'm bootstrapping this, and a lot of people reading this are watching this, or probably Listen, be like, listening to this <laughs> this is insane yeah listening to this yeah. <laughs> um, that's it it is insane how much insane. how much does it cost what's the budget for you to go up what do you need to raise so the total budget for me to go up um it, it, it's it's kind of complicated because it it really comes down to a lot of factors a lot of the things are kind of coming up uh, together kind of at the last minute um right now we're kind of we're deciding whether or not we have enough time to be able to have um, the same balloon that Alan Eustace ended up using um, mm -hmm. be able to be delivered. Uh, it's actually manufactured by a company in India, which is actually really surprising. It surprised me. Um, so if we can be able to get that here in time, and also is it worth doing it? Because in transit, it, something could happen to the balloon. They're so sensitive. I mean, it could end up happening mm -hmm. where we actually get a bad balloon and the entire thing's off. Oh, um, no. It, there, there's a, a, thousands of dollars would be just gone down the toilet if if that were the case. So it, it's one of those things where we have to make that risk assessment of, okay, is that worth it? And instead of doing the three-man launch because things ended up happening to the team, we're only now doing the one-man launch. So I'm the only one that's going up instead of having it to where three people go up, I jump, the other two come down using the device that I created. So oh, it's wow. a lot cheaper than it was before. So mostly what it comes down to is we have the suit. We have um, how much is a suit the balloon. Cost? So the suit, which is interesting, and this is an interesting story for everybody that's reading it. So we Listen. weren't actually <laughs> able to get a suit lended to us because we're not a government entity. So that basically ended up leaving us with, what do we do? And I ended up going, okay, for every single problem, you should never, ever, ever, ever accept something as it is. Accept it for what it can be. So mm -hmm. I go how can I make this a reality? I, I no longer have a suit. The entire thing's probably off. I can't do this. Okay, it was a good run. I tried my best. <laughs> I raised a bunch of money and I still can't do it. Okay, I'll accept defeat. But the thing is, I didn't accept defeat. I turned around and I was like, how do you make your own spacesuit? And I know that's a crazy, crazy thing to do, a crazy, crazy thought to have. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, the chances of me successfully doing it were slim to none. I mean, I saw the patents and I understood that and I'm, I'm good at picking up stuff pretty quickly. And then all of a sudden I saw a ray of hope. I ended up seeing that some, some I think it's a paleontologist, uh, back in 2008 um, at, I believe, Portland University ended up creating his own spacesuit for $2,000, his own functioning really? spacesuit, $2,000. That's amazing. And I was like, are you kidding me? And I ended up basically just researching everything about this guy. I was like, how in the world is he doing it? And like ever since 2008, he's built four more iterations, one each better than the last. Mm -hmm. And the coolest part is that he's been cataloging this throughout his entire journey. Mm -hmm. So he's been, he's been posting on Twitter and uh, he's been posting on Facebook. He's been posting on the website. He's been posting videos on YouTube. And I was like, okay, so these are the materials that he's using. This is this is how he's doing these specific devices. And I'm like, you know what? I can do this. I can make these things. This isn't hard to me anymore. So by him being able to do that, by him being a groundbreaker, by just doing something that everybody thought was crazy, it laid the groundwork for me to go, okay, well, that's, that's doable now. Let's do this. So I ended up ordering all the materials in order to actually build the suit. So I'm actually building the suit, and I'm actually um, – I, I bought, and this is going to sound even crazier too, is that scuba tanks can actually be able to survive in space. Um, and <laughs> a lot of people don't recognize that, that scuba tanks are used to being able to um, withstand atmospheres of se several atmospheres. And when you're at ground level, you're at one atmosphere. When you go 33 feet deep, you're at two and it continues on all the way down um, as you go deeper and deeper. The cool part is that with with what I'm doing, I'm going from one atmosphere to zero. So it's just the inverse pressure effect. So the fascinating part about that is that I can actually use scuba tanks. So I already have my oxygen supply 
worked out because somebody created a scuba tank. And then I'm like, all right, so the next thing I need to do is worry about heat. So when I ended up looking at this guy's videos, they were actually Wait. using it to where they just ran water through a circuit with a motor and some ice cubes. And I was like, well, that's not practical. I ended up seeing in the videos that it melted within usually about five minutes. I was like, that's not going to work. So then I was like, okay, we're using Kevlar, we're using Nomex, and these are both flammable materials that don't breathe. They're very heavy. They make you super hot, and you can actually overheat and die if you if you don't have any kind of coolant system. So I was like, what are some things that are like these materials? And I was like, okay, let's think about this. I Googled it, and I was like, wait a minute, NASCAR, because I know that they wear flame-retardant um, clothing. I ended up Googling it, getting down into the nitty-gritty, and I ended up discovering that they actually have – um, entire coolant systems that the NASCAR drivers wear while they're going around the Indy 500 or where they're going around the cart, uh, well, going around how the hot circuit. Does it, how hot does it get? I mean, why do you need a, a cooling mechanism in your suit? Well, if your own body temperature can't be able to vent heat, you'll literally kill yourself. You'll overheat and really? your organs will shut down. Yes. So if I put you in a spacesuit without any coolant system, your own body heat will literally kill you. Fudge. Yeah. <laughs> this is nuts, man. I'm like, I'm listening to you, and, and as I'm listening to you, Joseph, I'm thinking, has this guy lost a few a few screws? Because I mean, like, that's you, you, I mean, like everything you're talking about, it's so like the, if the balloon pops and if a bird pops it, and and if this happens, and if I spin round this way, I might die. And and oh, and if the the air coolant doesn't work in the suit, then my body will suffocate itself. And for and that's that's not even including the fact that you're 140,000 feet above the ground. I mean, what? Yeah. So uh, <laughs> another fun fact is, uh, and a lot of people don't know this, and this is actually going to be something for a lot of listeners, is that when you go to space, the thing that kills you, a lot of people think it is literally the cold or it's lack of oxygen. The thing that actually kills you is depressurization. So once you get past the Armstrong limit, which is 63,000 feet, um, if you do not have any pressure, um, the boiling point of water will actually decrease with less pressure. So it, we're made out of water. So our body temperature by nature is 98.6. So what ends up happening when you go past 63,000 feet is that the boiling point of water decreases past the point to where you literally your your blood will boil like you literally will <laughs> die in about 13 seconds oh um, my if you god a leak in your suit. yeah so you could boil to death yeah so uh, essentially that can that can actually oh happen oh my but god don't do it Joseph. I, I know it sounds crazy <laughs> don't I do it, it crazy. <laughs> <laughs> don't do this you're 25 years old you're 24 years old you got yeah. the whole life ahead of you maybe you know but, like just but the thing is somebody has to break the ground somebody has to be able to make it safer and and if it was, if governments and, and organizations were really interested in being able to help people be able to actually innovate in this space, they would make it more affordable. And Why is every, the government and, not helping you to do this? Why are they not backing you up? Oh, that's another topic that uh, <laughs> I don't know if I should mention on this. Okay, uh, fine. So, so let's just say that that's another hurdle. Like, how many things have gone wrong so far? Like, it hasn't been a smooth ride, right? It's, oh, it's, no. Um, it has been nothing short of the worst possible luck and it may be accounted to experience and life experience, but it started off, um, once I, I ended up meeting, uh, this guy, um, and I, and I just won't mention his name. Uh, he had launched a, uh, he launched a golden record into space and played it, um, basically setting a world record back last July. And I was like, great, this guy seems to know what he's doing, okay. He was going to launch a 360 camera into space for uh, NASA uh, in order to be able to co record the solar eclipse that's on August 21st. And I was like, awesome, this guy seems to know his stuff, he seems well connected. Uh, he's worked on previous teams before, he has over 20 years of experience. I'm like, let's partner up with them, great. And then we ended up basically talking, we're like, hey, we can actually be able to send people up there too. And then I told him about my idea that I had uh, basically said in front of a bunch of people about sending microsatellites into space for um, a fraction of the cost. Mm -hmm. And then that ended up evolving into let's do it. So then it started no more than about I'd say roughly eight months ago that we started that I started aggressively kind of working toward this path to actually send people into space. And <laughs> what ended up happening almost immediately is that I got an investor, a multi-billion-dollar investor um, out of Europe, and he was 100% on board. He's been trying to go to space for the longest amount of time. He's bought a bunch of tickets. He even has tickets to Richard Branson's thing. He has tickets to all these different things, but nothing has ever really panned out. And that's kind of the reality of this space. I mean, something could happen, and all of a sudden, even my project could be off the table. 
And really? that's okay. that's the unfortunate reality. That's the inherent risk. And that's why a lot of people aren't doing it is because it's such a risky pursuit. And I'm not saying I'm going to succeed. I could go through all this entire process. I could talk about it as much as I want. But until the final hour, none, none of this matters. So mm-hmm. in that regard, um, once I ended up getting the investor, once I had basically this team, we were all working on it. We came up with the concept. I spent like 20 grand on um, all the CAD designs and everything else like that for the model, the simulations. We had a guy who had worked on um, uh, sending shuttles into space. He'd worked on some of the shuttles uh, for NASA. He had sent, another guy had sent satellites into orbit. Another guy had, um, I can't remember what the other guy did. I think <laughs> so you had, a team, you had a team of people that were highly, highly experienced. Oh, exactly. Everybody that was extremely highly, highly experienced. And the funny part is, is that what, what I find fascinating is that I was able to recommend things from coming from without an aerospace engineering background by any means that were actually more innovative than some of the box solutions that they had kind of come into play. So I'm not saying that to brag and I'm not saying that to elevate myself, but uh, a certain um, circumstance was like when we were talking about how do we land the actual lander? Um, so like the actual capsule that people go up in, how do we actually land it, make sure everybody lands safely? Mm-hmm. They wanted to be able to add a $200,000 addition to the actual cost of the vehicle, which was half that cost already. Um, and they wanted to be able to have it to where the, this giant basically bag inflated um, in case of the balloon popping within the basically the death limit, which is basically if the, if the balloon ends up popping um, without any kind of safety underneath 1,000 feet, the parachute can't safely deploy. Um, so basically you'll end up just hitting the ground at terminal velocity and it's not going to be a good story for anybody. Um, mm-hmm. so they wanted to add this airbag in order to be able to prevent that. But they even said that might not be able to prevent injury, um, or in worst case death. And I was like, well, why the heck are we adding it then? That doesn't make any sense. Well, they're like, well, we've done it uh, before on this and this. And I was like, okay, why don't we look at it a different way? And I was like, have you guys ever been to Vegas? And like, this is going to be the craziest thing that I'm going to tell you is that, Really? I asked them if they'd been to Vegas, and they were like, well, yeah. And I was like, have you ever heard of the slingshot? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, why don't we just get two cranes, and we get a tether, and we have it to where the tether goes all the way up to 1,000 a, a feet, and then once we're at that altitude, it just attaches. And they're like, why would we do that? I was like, well, if the balloon pops, then we just basically sling back and forth exactly like the slingshot. And they're like, that might actually work. So something that would only take $18,000 – versus $200,000 ended up innovating. It's the most crude approach in the world, but it's something that I had from life experience that I was able to be able to contribute to the project. The same thing with being able to take the gas from the balloon into a reservoir in order to be able to allow for people to go back down. That was also my idea. Joseph, when is the when is the planned launch to go into space? So the planned launch is August 21st. It's going to be during the total solar eclipse that literally it's a little bit different than most solar eclipses. So in a normal mm-hmm. solar eclipse, you're used to seeing that weird crescent shadow that causes all the shadows to start dancing in really weird like shapes and figures. Um, mm-hmm. But this will be a complete total eclipse for two and a half minutes. It's going to go from daytime to nighttime and then back to daytime. And the most wow. fascinating part, and this is what's really cool, is that for the first 15 seconds – It'll take the light grids to be able to turn on because they're going to go, okay, it's getting dark now. And it turns on all the lights and then you have light pollution again. But for 15 seconds, you will not have light pollution. So you're going to be able to see space uh, without any light pollution. You're going to be able to see more detail than you've ever seen in your entire life. And if there's any photographers in here, I would highly recommend that you take advantage of that 15 seconds to be able to capture uh, pictures in the Milky Way because you're going to be able to get it brighter and more vivid than you've ever been able to do it before. Wow. That's incredible. And you're flying, you're planning to fly into space during that solar eclipse? Yes. So I'm planning to be able to, I'm planning to be in the sky August 21st at 1 p.m. during the solar eclipse. Wow. Where, oh my goodness. So where could they follow you on your, like, because it's, that's in another, about six weeks from now. So where can people listening actually follow you uh, uh, and, and see it happening? So the best place to do it would honestly just be to follow my personal Facebook page. I regrettably haven't had enough time to actually build uh, my my own personal website. I just it's something that I just haven't had the time to do, and I haven't allocated mm-hmm. the resources in order to do it because I'm I'm literally spending every last dime into uh, the space launch, and that's that's the only thing that could potentially end up derailing it all is just not having enough money. And I know it sounds crazy that I make a lot, but I just don't have enough yet. But it's a very very big financial undertaking. Um, and the only other thing that could potentially cancel it for anybody who's listening is, uh, weather factors. So if it's raining that day, 
if it's overcast, if it's more than eight miles an hour wind speeds, there's no way I can be able to, to, to launch. So it's going to be postponed. And uh, unfortunately, if the balloon is rolled out, um, when we end up actually going to do this and it ends up being windy or it ends up being rainy, um, unfortunately, the balloon is going to be a complete and total loss. So I wouldn't oh, be able to no. do it for several months later. Oh, crap. That's So oh. it's a one shot. And one it, shot. Here we go. Well, I'll tell you what we'll. I'll tell you what I'll tell you what we'll do, Joseph. I mean, first of all, for any of you listening uh, who wants to follow Joseph on his journey, uh, just need to go to his uh, personal Facebook page, which I'm going to link to it in the show notes. So if you go to DanielGeffen.com forward slash ninety two, that's Daniel Geffen forward slash danielgeffen.com forward slash 92 i'll put all the links in the show notes there um and what we're gonna do is we're gonna do a a second part to this uh episode where i'm going to actually have uh joseph on the show uh probably a couple of weeks after uh, his launch or even if it doesn't go well i want to find out exactly what happened if it went if he if he launched if he didn't launch um so guys you know don't forget to subscribe uh you just go to itunes you click on can i pick your brain hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any future episodes and um joseph this has been absolutely incredible thank you so much for letting me pick your brain and thank you to all my fellow brain pickers I'm looking forward to the day when I'll be picking your brain. You've been listening to the Can I Pick Your Brain podcast. Inspiration without perspiration is like a tiger without teeth. So to put these ideas into action, head over to danielgeffen.com.